Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. And a hot one out there it is today. A hot hump day. You know when you fire the computer up, and in the information banner at the bottom. You see, heat advisory, (laughs) you know it's serious, right? Supposedly. Yeah. Through The weatherman has missed the high prediction for the last six days in a row, according to my app. Okay, so which way? They've overshot. Okay. They've said 101, 102, 103, and it never quite got there, at least where I'm living. All right, now, on my vehicle yesterday, traveling home... Right after the show from West Point, it showed 102. Is that accurate? Yeah, those are you think? notoriously inaccurate. <laughs> well, it sure as hell felt they like just it sit was there that under much. glass in the sun. Okay. I mean, the thermostat, or not the thermostat, that's a different part of it, but the thermometer yeah. in the vehicle sits in the same location as some people cook food in the summertime in the uh, windshield. Well, it was hot. Oh, yeah, it's still hot. <laughs> It was uh, hot as Hades, as the saying goes. The president said when he was in Hawaii, it was hot on his feet. Did you hear him say that? What a joke that whole deal was. I mean, the, the good people of the great state of Hawaii, who, by the way, overwhelmingly support this guy. That's maybe, a lot of people, I'm not sure if they realize this, that's maybe the most Democrat state in the country. Which is saying something, because California exists. Yeah. New York, Connecticut, Joyce, et cetera, some of these other deep blue states. It's um, And his sleeping during the banquet, I talked about it yesterday. I wasn't sure exactly where the what the setting was. It was a banquet. He's sleeping. The guy's snoozing. Man, just admit, this is a problem. It truly is. But we got uh, RNC debates set up for this evening from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's also, by the way, the site of the RNC convention next year. Milwaukee. And, of course, Wisconsin. 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 
is seen as a, uh, a pivotal state in the road to 270. They're the ones with the don't you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, because they're so close to Canada, don't you know. <laughs> Got a good and a boot, eh? <laughs> That's it. Uh, it's actually a beautiful state. Some great golf up there, too. We just want you to know, for those of us that play golf, uh, so that's where they're going to have that debate tonight. And we got, what, eight on the stage. I think I went through the yeah. lineup yesterday. And DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy will be center stage. And Larry Elder's going to sue because he's not allowed. Suing. That's what he's uh, saying. Suing the, the RNC, RNC yeah. yeah. Because he don't like the rules or what? Uh, he's saying they've walked back on their rules and that he has the requirements that they've set out, but now they're changing their mind on one of the requirements because one of the polls that shows him with at least 1% has ties to Trump, and Trump's not taking part, <laughs> so that polls out. I don't get it. Oh, geez. So what the requirements, I believe, are you have to be polling at 1%. That's one of them, yeah. And have 40,000 individual unique contributions. And donors. I think there's another one where you have to have a certain number of states with a certain number of contributions. I think that's right. And you also have to sign a pledge that you will support the yeah. eventual nominee, the criteria. But right now, uh, it looks like we're going to have eight up there tonight. And I look forward to it. 8 o'clock, I believe, our time, officially, is when all the fun gets underway. It's about when I'll be eating supper. I might just catch the highlights. I don't want to ruin my appetite. (laughs) Oh, come on, man. Come on, man. (laughs) So, and then uh, we went through this yesterday, but we'll do it again. We got DeSantis and Ramaswamy at pole positions one and two in center stage. And they will be flanked respectively by Governor, former Vice President as well, Mike Pence, and Ambassador Nikki Haley. You see how I'm recognizing them by their their titles, at least former. And then to uh, Pence's right, our left, as looking at the screen, Governor Chris Christie, and to the right... Of uh, as we look at the screen to of of Nikki Haley, Senator so stage left. That stage left. Well, stage right and stage left are from the view of the performer or whoever's on ah, stage. Ah, that's right. That would be stage left for Senator Tim Scott. But as we look at the screen, as you on the right. looking at your television, isn't that what the radio broadcasters say? The team is moving left to right as you look at your radio. <laughs> and then it's uh, flanking. On the left of your screen will be former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. And on the right, Governor Doug Burgum of the great state of North Dakota. I, I heard... Um, Heard a little discussion about it tonight on the Fox News Channel. Of course, it is uh, they're the ones that's hosting it. Martha McCallum, Brett Bayer will be the moderators, and they were talking about Mr. Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. But they got it wrong. They said he made his money in real estate. He may have made some money in real estate, but his big payday came from the software business. 
He was involved in a startup called Great Plains. I remember it very well. Back in the early days of the PCs, it was one of the options for PC-based accounting software that evolved into what we call ERP software, Enterprise Resource Planning. It's kind of a fancy term for comprehensive integrated accounting system, something I did for a living for a long time. And Mr. Burgum was involved in, in this startup called Great Plains. He had about 10 employees, and he grew it substantially. He sold it, what did I say, 2001 or so to Microsoft for, what, a couple of billion dollars, as I recall, Doug Burgum. And he did pretty well. So he will be the wealthiest person on stage. A lot of people may not realize this. I think his net worth is comes in as reported at about $1.5 billion. I could probably get by with that. And uh, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy comes in just under a billion. It's reported that Asa Hutchinson, you seen this? His net worth, a million and a half. Still doing better than I am. Million and a half bucks. He's a little older than you, though, my friend. He's been <laughs> at it a little longer. So... Um, but so that's just a, an idea of the net worths of the candidates. Governor DeSantis, I think he too is kind of in that sort of couple of million range. That's what we're looking at. Eight of them on the stage tonight. We got Congressman Michael Guest joining us in the next segment here on Middays. Sawyer Walters, opinion writer with Super Talk Mississippi News. He's got a lot of other jobs as well coming on at 11.05. We'll... Uh, We'll talk to also Marty Stewart, you know him, famous um, musician working on that Congress of Country over there in uh, Philadelphia. That's coming on at 12.05. He's also going to talk about Dolly, Dolly Parton, coming to the Magnolia State. So we got a full lineup in store for you today, but uh, for those of us who are political junkies, it's like Christmas because we got a debate tonight, RNC debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, I, I'll have to admit I'm getting a little giddy about it right now, just thinking about those folks being up on the stage. The only thing, of course, that uh, I'm sorry about is the fact that Donald Trump will not be joining the group on the stage. He will not. We got some news to talk about with respect to the former president because all indications are he's going to surrender, I guess is the terminology they used. That's coming up Friday. He's got to do it by Friday to Fulton County. The Trump, uh, pardon me, the Fulton County Sheriff has been talking about how Mr. Trump will be handled. He's a little different. When you think about being a former president, how will Mr. Trump be handled when he surrenders to, that's what they call it, surrendering to Fulton County? We got uh, that for you later on in the program. And also an interesting piece penned by Nigel Farage there across the pond. You know him from the Brexit stuff. He talks about what he thinks may be in store for us vis-a-vis Donald Trump and what's about to happen there. We're coming right back with Congressman Michael Guest. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. 
Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, it is middays. We welcome to the program Mississippi's congressman who represents the 3rd District, Michael Guest. Congressman, good to see you, sir. Gerard, great to see you today. Look, I want you, you to make sure that you notice I wore my powder, powder blue shirt just for you. Uh, I know you're a big Ole Miss fan. Uh, we're right there on the verge of football season. Uh, Ten days away, if I'm not mistaken. I know week zero starts this week. That's right. I think everybody in Mississippi is looking forward to actually next Saturday when uh, the kickoffs uh, happen here in the Magnolia State. Absolutely. And so you got a son who is a student at the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss in law school. I, I do. I've got I've got two sons. Uh, my oldest son, which you mentioned, Kennedy, uh, started law school this week uh, at Ole Miss, and so uh, he is uh, hitting the books and uh, he has enjoying the kind of the transition. He uh, graduated from Mississippi State and and now is uh, attending Ole Miss. So. Uh, um, uh, he's in that, that, that phase of life where he's kind of torn between these two schools. But uh, I tell Not him, according to his bedroom, the way he decorated. Well, Come yeah. on now. Well, you know, I tell him, don't go up there and be an obnoxious fan. Go up there, you know, uh, take everything in and, you know, be somebody that can root for both both schools on Saturday, uh, except for the one Saturday they play each other. Uh, and I tell him that's going to make him politically correct. If he ever gets in politics that's later, right. then he can pander to both of his major fan bases. Uh, and then my younger son. Uh, Patton, uh, yep. sophomore Mississippi State, uh, had a chance to go see him uh, this uh, this week. Earlier this week, was up there Monday visiting with him, and uh, he's he's loving life. School has started. He's living in the fraternity house. Yep. Just he's living the dream right now. And I tell him, <laughs> look, enjoy every minute of it uh, because uh, these days pass way too quickly. That's all. That's awesome. That is fantastic. And, and before we get started, yeah. uh, I saw you have a new family edition uh, in your home. So I haven't said night. anything about that. Oh, I'm sorry. I might, no, I might no, have spoiled no, no, it. Please. Because it was scheduled for today. K-N-I-G-H-T is our, our new Black Lab puppy. Of course, uh, Rhino, you remember it was uh, Thanksgiving night that uh, Brute, our beloved Black Labrador, uh, passed away. We were headed to the Egg Bowl and, and had a change of plans, unfortunately. But finally, we, we uh, decided it was time to, to uh, bring another one in. Brute is kind of, I say, still the king. We got the prince now. The prince will have to succeed as the king. But uh, we're having a blast with that little puppy. And we, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, I saw, yeah. saw him on Facebook, yeah. and um, uh, He's my wife awesome. showed that to me. And I said, look, I'm going to tell Gerard uh, next time I see him, uh, <laughs> congratulate him on your newest family member. Love a lab. I had a black lab growing up, probably one of the fav- best dogs we ever had. They're just so loyal yeah. uh, and, and, and so kind. So y'all picked a great addition uh, to the family. Appreciate that. We're looking forward to it. Next time we have an event at the house, don't be surprised now, Congressman, if uh, if he's not the star. You know uh, how that works? Hey, that, 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 uh, and he deserves to be. <laughs> All right. Well, first, 
Let's talk a little politics. We got uh, the big debate. We were just setting it up for the audience. We got eight on the stage tonight in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, of course, the the leader in the clubhouse, as they say, former President Donald Trump, will not be uh, participating. But we'll get to hear from eight of the candidates that are all looking to move up in, in the polling. What do you think? You know, I, you know, I, I wish that the... President Trump would be on the debate stage. I think you would have a much broader audience, people wanting to watch uh, if, if the president was there. Uh, I, I don't blame the president for not being there. I mean, you look at the polling numbers. Um, the president currently is polling right at 50 yeah. percent, um, uh, maybe just over, um, uh, w- w- which is which is large because, you know, we've seen uh, Donald Trump's uh, polling numbers um, several weeks ago, probably in the low 40s. Now he, he's moved up to the mid 50s. Uh, you know, I think that all the candidates on the stage, they're going to be vying to be the alternative candidate to Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, we thought Ron DeSantis was going to, to have that mantle. Um, we've seen his polling numbers really fall over the last several weeks. Uh, and, and so I think all of these candidates who are on the stage, they need to have some sort of breakout moment if they're going to mount any real, real challenge uh, to Donald Trump being the Republican nominee. Yeah. Uh, I think that after this debate and maybe one or two others, you'll start seeing some of these candidates, uh, if their polling numbers don't move up at all, they'll probably begin to start falling out of the race. Uh, and then I, I hope that as we go forward with debates, uh, that we'll be able to see President Trump uh, on the debate stage uh, with some of the other challengers. Uh, but I don't know that, there, it, that this debate is going to be widely watched tonight again without Donald Trump being yeah. there. I just think the audience uh, is not as engaged as it would have been uh, with his presence on the stage. Well, one thing, perhaps, though, uh, Congressman, that, that might occur is that rather than Donald Trump sort of taking all the air out of the room and attacking every one of these candidates, which he's known for, there'll be more focus on issues. And and these candidates will have the first time, uh, I guess, publicly around their their competitors uh, to distinguish themselves on their policy positions. You know, you're exactly right. And some of these candidates will have the the opportunity to introduce themselves to the public. I mean, I think everybody knows uh, Mike Pence. Uh, They know Ron DeSantis. They know Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. But, you know, a couple of the other candidates on the stage are lesser known because they've not been involved, at least in national politics. I know we've got a couple of governors on the stage. Uh, And so uh, I think that people who really follow politics, you and I and many of the other listeners on this show, you know, we're going to be able to learn more about these people that we've just read about. We're going to be able to see their demeanor, see how they interact, kind of see where they stand uh, on important issues. Uh, And and so if you're one of the candidates on the stage outside of Ron DeSantos, I think you really need a good night tonight to be able to make sure that uh, you can be seen at least as a credible challenger at at this stage uh, in the the process. Yeah, but, you know, I think you would agree the most important thing is we got to make a change in the White House. No doubt. I mean, that, that's that's what this is all about. I would support every one of those candidates over the present uh, office holder. Uh, no doubt. And, and I hope your entire listening audience would. I mean, I think if you look at the record of Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris, I, I think it's been abysmal. Uh, I think that they've really done nothing uh, other than to, you know, uh, reverse many of the successful policies of the Trump administration. Uh, you know, I think as we go into next year's election cycle, you know, the question that we need to ask, are you better off now under President Biden than you were under President Trump? Uh, and I think that everybody that answers that question would have to be a resounding no. Um, it is so imperative that we retake the White House uh, next year in 2024. 
Uh, not only that, I, I see it is is important that that we be able to pick up two seats in the in the Senate, a net gain of two uh, yeah. to put us at fifty one. Uh, but that's not going to be easy. I, in, in Mississippi, I, I think Mississippi is solidly red. Uh, I think if people in Mississippi uh, understand, they get the, the the bad policies of this administration, the impact that it's had on them personally, on their families, uh, on their businesses. Uh, but we've got to understand that the rest of the world doesn't look at things with the same lens that Mississippi does. Uh, and so this is not going to be easy. As bad as the president, as President Biden has been, uh, and I would say that he is uh, the worst president we've had since Jimmy Carter, maybe even worse than Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Uh, if you look at national polling, uh, this is still a horse race. Uh, no whether, doubt about whether it. You, whether he's polling against Donald Trump, whether he's polling against Ron DeSantis, whoever the Republican is, national polling still puts this at 50-50. It's amazing. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that our party is energized, that our people are turning out to vote, uh, and that we are electing conservatives up and down the ticket. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and the, the polls, uh, poll after poll, and regardless of the polling organization or the, sort of the leanings of the polling organization, all show that uh, economics uh, right. are the top issues. It, it, they always are. James Carville sort of made that go down in infamy when he said it's about the economy, stupid, and, and we'll never forget that. I think I think he was right, uh, and inflation tops that list of yeah. economic uh, concerns. Well, because inflation impacts uh, every one of us, yeah. uh, and every time we go to the grocery store, we see that our paycheck doesn't go as far every week as it went the week before. Right. Uh, so when you go to Walmart or Kroger and you're buying your groceries and your household goods, uh, once you go to check out, uh, the same goods you bought a month ago now are going to cost you a little bit more. Uh, when we go to the gas station, we've seen gas prices begin to rise. Uh, uh, electric bills right now. Of course, everybody's having to run their air conditioning yeah. more because of uh, this heat dome that we've seen that has uh, engulfed uh, not only Mississippi but a large part of the United States. And so, so people's paychecks they're, they're they're not going as far uh, as they did uh, even several months ago. Uh, and and people are going going to, to to vote based on those paycheck issues. Yeah, we got a break right here. But uh, when we come back, uh, wanted to talk to you about. Uh, the budget coming up again. The Freedom Caucus has uh, issued their sort of list of demands on what they want to see in the stopgap funding bill and, and the more permanent, permanent as for a year funding bills, the way we operate up there. We got Congressman Michael Guest in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi.
are back in the Element Well studio. It's middays. We're visiting with Congressman Michael Guest. He, of course, represents Mississippi's 3rd District. So before we went to break, uh, Congressman, we were talking about the need uh, to fund the government again. This comes around. The whole system's kind of broken, isn't it, though, Congressman? I mean, it it, 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 it is. I mean, I, it's been probably well before my time in Congress that we've actually passed a budget on time. Yeah. Um, our budget year uh, is uh, ends uh, last day of September, so October first, uh, we will be looking at a uh, next budget year. Uh, and there are 12 different appropriations bills, um, the, and they deal with funding the entire government from, you know, which is a, a gamut of federal programs. Uh, and as we sit today, uh, the Senate has passed none of the funding bills from out of the Senate, and the House has passed one. Uh, we were <laughs> able to pass one of our funding bills, uh, MILCON VA, Military Construction and Veteran Affairs uh, bills, uh, out the House floor. Uh, now, we have in the House, we've passed uh, 10 of the 12 bills out of committee. I think the Senate has passed all 12 bills out of committee. Uh, but you're looking hmm. at a condensed schedule. We'll come back after Labor Day. So you'll have three, three and a half weeks uh, for Congress uh, to either pass some sort of spending bills, legislation to fund the government, uh, or what we've uh, historically seen is a continuing resolution, uh, right. which is we agree to fund the government for a certain length of time, whether that be days or weeks or months, uh, and it has generally been funded at the prior year spending level. Um, uh, continuing resolutions are, are not a great way to fund the government, particularly if you look at things such as military programs. Uh, the military can't start new programs uh, with money that has been appropriated by continuing resolutions, so uh, often what you see is that it, uh, our military uh, preparedness, uh, uh, new programs that we would like to start suffer uh, during that, that period of time. But that's going to be uh, the debate in the battle because whatever spending bills we pass out of the House, uh, I will guarantee you those bills will not match up with what will be passed <laughs> out of the Senate. They will then have to go to conference, try to marry those spending bills together. Uh, and look, there's a, a, a huge disagreement in spending in Congress between what House Republicans want to spend uh, and then particularly what they want to spend in the Senate. Uh, and we know that our Democratic friends, uh, they have no interest in, in, in cutting spending. Uh, they would like to see spending particularly federal programs uh, expanded and so the the group that is trying to hold the line on spending is how, are going to be the house republicans yeah. uh, and we're all going to have to be in this together we're all going to have to have resolve if we want to see us bend that spending curve, and I know you're a big numbers guy, and, and I think you would agree with me that our spending trajectory is unsustainable, uh, that we've got to start bending that curve, uh, and now is the time to do that. Uh, and it's not going to be easy. Yeah, and let's let's clarify. I, I, I know you're fully aware of this for the audience. I, I think the average American probably doesn't realize this: is that these appropriations bills and 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 these actions on funding the government really only address the discretionary portion of spending, which comes in at about thirty percent. That's right. The Seven. big spending, seventy percent, it's on autopilot. Yeah, that's right. Seventy percent is mandatory spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, servicing Interest. of the national debt. Uh, yeah. So seventy percent of the spending, Congress doesn't touch at all. Uh, yeah. And and every year we know that there are cost of living cola increases uh, for those programs. Uh, so those programs continue to rise. So we're dealing with thirty percent of 
funding. Uh, if you take out military spending and the, and, and the spending on, on our veterans. Which is discretionary. Uh, which is discretionary. Yep. But if you take that part of discretionary spending out, you're looking at about 12 to 15 yeah. percent of the budget. So right. a very real small percent of the budget that Congress actually has control over. Yeah. And so I guess the point is when, when we talk about trying to rein in spending, um, if we keep the military level or maybe a slight increase, we're looking at the 12 to 15 percent That's right. that, that really you have any control over. Not that you don't have control over mandatory spending, but, but the lift there is considerably heavier because you've got to get through the filibuster-proof uh, Senate. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, so you, you're looking at, you know, having to, again, marry those two spending bills up together and also knowing that, you know, the president has veto yeah, authority. Right. And so even if the House and Senate were to come to some sort of spending resolution uh, at a number lower than that spending cap, uh, President Biden could still come in and veto that. And then it would require a two-thirds vote and both chambers uh, to override a presidential veto. You know, the other thing that we're trying to do through this budgetary process uh, is we're trying to put conservative policies in place. Yeah. Uh, and so when you, you're looking at the budget process, you're not only looking at the, the dollars and cents that e- each agency is going to receive, uh, but you can also put some stipulations uh, on those fundings. Uh, some of the things that Republicans uh, have done in, that, in those spending bills that have passed out of committee uh, is uh, one w- would be a, a restriction that the VA uh, can only fly an American flag or a service uh, a flag of one of our armed services uh, over our VA facilities and our national cemeteries. Yeah. Um, you know, what I, it is wrong, I believe, for these political flags to be flying over a, a VA service, a VA facility or cemetery. We know that happened on the Mississippi Gulf here. Coast. Yeah. Uh, it, it is something that, that I think is wrong. I think it is something that the, that agency should be apolitical. They should serve all veterans. Uh, we, we shouldn't be looking at uh, whether a veteran is conservative or whether a, a veteran is, is more progressive. You know, that their, their, their primary goal and mission uh, is, is to serve those veterans, uh, those that have served us. And so, you know, part of the, the, the process also is trying to in, include conservative policy riders in this appropriations process. And so we want to cut spending uh, and we want to focus spending. Uh, there are a couple of areas that Republicans did want to plus up spending, uh, defense being one, uh, additional spending to secure the border being the other, uh, and the third uh, being uh, spending for our veterans. Uh, but in all other categories, the Republicans, at least House Republicans, are looking for areas to cut the budget uh, and bring spending under control. The concern that uh, I've shared quite a bit on the program, Congressman, is, is it seems like so much of uh, just action taken by government in general doesn't actually come from the Congress. It comes from the, the bureaucratic agency complex. And look no further than now the president, through uh, the Department of Ed, is circumventing the Supreme Court's ruling on student loan forgiveness, and they've implemented some changes in the terms of these loans that are effectively forgiving student loans. Uh, you're exactly right. And one thing Congress has done over the, the, the last several decades is we've given the administrative branch, uh, the executive branch, uh, we've given them the rulemaking authority. So we create these agencies, uh, EPA maybe being one, Department of Education, uh, and we basically allow them to create the rules and regulations that they're going to impose uh, upon the the American public. Yeah. And so Congress has ceded our authority to these agencies. Uh, and it's important that we try to claw that uh, try to claw that power back. Those decisions should be made 
uh, not by some bureaucrat uh, who's been working in the Department of Education for 40 years, but those decisions should be made by elected representatives. We should have a debate on that. The people should see us debating that. They should see us voting uh, for these policies and procedures uh, that we're going to put in place. Uh, but we have done a very poor job, uh, or Congress has, uh, by giving that authority up to the executive branch. Yeah, and it's been challenged, and, and like we saw in the court, uh, and then they just go back to the drawing board and figure out another way to subvert these yes. rulings. Stu- student loan forgiveness. Yeah. You know, you come in, the president tries to forgive student loan. We go to well, that's challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says no, that's not constitutional. The president doesn't have that authority. And within a week later, he's found. I tried to find a workaround uh, to once again go go forward with the student loan forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, and that again will be challenged in court. Uh, but 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 what you see is uh, that you know uh, since Congress right now uh, is uh, so uh, equally divided. Uh, Again, very narrow House and Senate. Uh, It's very difficult uh, for us as Republicans, for conservatives to make major changes. Uh, And one of the areas that we can do that is through these appropriations bills. So we're going to have to stay strong. We're going to have to use uh, this avenue uh, as a way to cut spending and as a way to see that we can uh, put conservative riders in these appropriation language bills. You're so right. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy has specifically stated that, that we're is going to defund the FBI and the IRS and the DOJ. He just believes they're they're highly politicized and, and weaponized, and really acting without authority to a great extent. I don't know if a president could do that, but uh, we need the Congress. We need you guys somehow to get the stars aligned so that we could rein in this administrative state. No, no doubt, and and and, I, and that's something that, that we recognize. Uh, something that we okay. don't we don't have the votes to do yet, but we're going to continue to push and continue to see that that happens at some point. I hope so, because it's 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 not the way our system was designed to work. No doubt, it wasn't what our founding fathers intended. Yep, appreciate it, Congressman. Yes, Always sir. good Thank to see you, sir. Thank you. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. everyone it's middays super talk mississippi live from the element well studio 
little right now by Van Halen bumping us into this segment here on the program. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The Dow presently up 148, the NASDAQ up 204, and that is because the 10-year Treasury yield has declined somewhat today. Uh, growth investors like that. Of course, typically the growth stocks include the technology issues that you find on the NASDAQ. It's very tech-heavy. And all that really means is the expectation that future earnings are worth more when the 10-year declines, worth less when the yield on the 10-year increases. So that's um, that's uh, really driving the NASDAQ up quite a bit today. It's good news because it has been kind of floundering of late. So we're also expecting, yeah, i got to get this in there, earnings after the bell from chip maker NVIDIA. NVIDIA. And I believe that's going to set the tone for the market, certainly in the short term and maybe a bit in the long term. And it's all about this artificial intelligence explosion And I think we could expect to see the markets go through the roof, honestly, if NVIDIA comes out and beats estimates, but more importantly, if they provide very favorable, positive guidance into the future. That's going to set the tone. On the other hand, if they deliver a different message, they don't beat expectations or they come in at expectations and their guidance is sort of tepid, I think we'll see the markets perhaps sell off because they, many believe they're a little overvalued, certainly right now in the value stocks, or pardon me, in the growth stocks on the NASDAQ. When you look at the price-to-earnings ratios, they're a bit elevated relative to historical levels. We got some tickets to give away for Doobie, the Doobie Brothers coming up this Saturday at the Brandon Amphitheater. Rhino will handle that. Later on in the show, Sports Talk Mississippi, they're going to be at the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College in Perkinston tomorrow. They'll be kicking off the Meet the Bulldogs night. Plus, you'll hear about the great things going on at Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. I certainly enjoyed my time up in West Point, Mississippi yesterday. I'm telling you, Scary Gary earned his keep yesterday, Rhino. It was hot. We had the fans humming. But it was still hot. I got to share a story as well. I saw uh, an individual that was kind of hanging out with about 30 minutes left. If you're familiar with uh, where we were at the Mossy Oak Mall, I believe it's called there on Highway 45. It's kind of a U-shaped structure in its uh, shops. Mossy Oak anchors it right in the center. That's where we set up. Of course, they're one of the sponsors. We set the Super Talk tent there, and there's an, an awning, an overhang over the sidewalk that's adjacent to the shops, the shop entrances. And I saw an individual um, down a, a few doors, hanging out, about 30 minutes left in the show, was carrying around a small bag, yellow plastic shopping bag. Didn't think anything of it, and uh, right at the end of the show, and when we signed off, I took the headset on, off. He approached, 
extended his hand, shook my hand, and told me how much he enjoyed the show. I really appreciate that. But he knew I was a big Journey fan. He's heard me talk about that. And he also heard me mention that uh, I, I just celebrated my wedding anniversary of 42 years, July 25th. And he was somewhere where he he noticed he on the bookshelf uh, a magazine-style booklet commemorating the 50th anniversary of Journey, hmm. full of articles and photos. Really cool. And that's what was in the bag, and he presented it to me as an anniversary gift. Oh, wow. How cool is that? I mean, I was just blown away, i got to tell you guys. And I, I just thanked him, shook his hand some more, thanked him, thanked him, thanked him. I mean, that was just, you know, they're good people in this world. They're good people in Mississippi. That was just incredibly thoughtful and drove to the site to hand me that gift in person. How neat is that? That's pretty cool. I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm honored. I'm humbled. I'm blessed. I really appreciate it. We are stepping aside for a break right now. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, it's Sawyer Walters, opinion writer, Super Talk Mississippi News, and he's got a bunch of other jobs, too. We'll dig into it. Stay with us. of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays live from the Element Well studio on this hump day. We welcome to the program Sawyer Walters, opinion writer with Super Talk Mississippi News. Got a lot of other jobs as well. Hey, Sawyer, what's going on? <laughs> hey, Gerard, I can always count on you to have some good music playing for us. Oh, we, abs- uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can uh, expect that we'll have a journey at the top of the hour that leading us in, introducing <laughs> us into the next hour, no doubt about it. So you wrote an article here published uh, on the Super Talk Mississippi website. Next up, young professionals voicing their vote for the future of Mississippi. This was published a couple of weeks ago, August the 11th. Uh, tell us what the gist of the article is, Sawyer. Yes, sir. So we really appreciate it. I'm a board member of the Mississippi Gulf Coast um, Board of Young Professionals, and we got the partner with Super Talk to kind of give our view on some of the important issues related to Mississippi. And so I wrote a little bit. I've been very involved growing up about um, politics and elections, and it was kind of timely that for August um, I stepped up and um, had an article written about the election process and how young professionals are kind of the next up and whether that is helping our elected officials um, become elected or through campaigns or whether that's just getting involved and um, getting out and having your voice heard in the voting process. Uh, I've been able to work on Capitol Hill and uh, meet everybody from uh, 
President Trump and Vice President Pence, uh, all the way down to um, our local senators and uh, congressional staffers and members as well, um, working on different mayoral campaigns and um, and state positions as well. So got a real big heart for South Mississippi and just spreading how our state is one of the best, if not the best in the nation. Yeah. So are you finding, Sawyer, that uh, folks in, in that age group and that age range are they getting more involved in the political process, less, about the same? What do you think? Yes, sir. So I think that we've seen a large disconnect uh, in the past uh, few elections and just voter turnout. And Secretary Watson's done a great job in trying to energize the um, the people to get out and vote. And one of the things that I'm seeing personally is a lot of my friends are reaching out going, hey, man, you know, I, I want to learn more. I want to see how can I get involved? How can I make a difference? Is it worth making a difference? And and just getting that message out there that um, there's a huge demographic in Mississippi and with our census and um, especially in District 4 down here that there's a younger vote um, that's stepping up to take the message and to uh, to make our voices heard. And and it's just connecting them with um, how they feel and seeing how, um, you know, getting messages out there that they can relate to. Yeah. Are there are there any sort of distinctions in in uh, in, in policy views or things that you may think of that are perhaps more important uh, to that age group and young professionals in particular versus, say, folks with a few more birthdays in the bank like me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, sir. I think that uh, a lot of it can correlate uh, and go across the aisle, Um, whether you you lean conservative or more liberal, whether you're younger, you're older. It's just seeing the success that Mississippi has. And uh, two of the biggest things that I like to tout um, and point out in Mississippi is our recent uh, economic development achievements as well as our educational achievements that we have and um, letting people know that, I mean, Mississippi, as I'm sure you know, has grown exponentially while the nation was falling behind during COVID. Our fourth grade um, reading and math has jumped to one of the top of the nation, yeah. one of the um, top highest achieving growth that we've had and our dynamic development projects from all the way up in the Delta to down here on the coast to even up in um, up in North Mississippi, we've just seen a growth of industries that want to move here, and um, especially the Gulf Blue we have de- down here on the coast. With uh, one of my favorite stories, Ocean Arrow, they moved from San Diego um, down here to Gulfport, Mississippi, to be a part of what's going on here. That our state is open, um, and it's remained open through some of the hardest times in our nation's history, and and we have a, a history of helping those industries come here. Yeah, do do you feel like Sawyer that candidates are are working more to appeal uh, to the younger generations, or do you think that maybe some of them are ignoring them? I do feel like we have a, a strong contingent that's working toward that younger generation. I mean, I ha- we have a lot of um, younger people that have been um, elected and brought into the uh, into the political ranks from friends of mine like Kent McCarty up in Hattiesburg, and um, we have you know all over the coast between Kevin Felsher and. Um, I mean, there's these different state representatives and uh, industry people that understand that uh, they they need to get the younger vote involved. And they've done a good job doing different um, talks with uh, whether it's the ADP in Hattiesburg or, um, like I said, the young professional group down here on the Gulf Coast. We've had a lot of our political people reach out. Um, I'm on the policy and government uh, board for the young professionals and, and a lot of our representatives and state elected officials have done a great job in reaching out, saying, how can I get involved? How can I help? How can um, I support you as young professionals? Yeah. Um, you talked in your article about what you described as, as upsets uh, during your college tenure. 
that you thought were driven by younger voters. You you discuss uh, Representative Missy McGee, for example, and then 25-year-old Toby Barker, who unseated the mayor, of course, of Hattiesburg, who unseated an incumbent to become uh, the mayor of Hattiesburg, of the hub city. So you you believe that uh, that the young professionals, those in that age group, the, the burgeoning sort of voters set, uh, make a big difference? Yes, sir, absolutely. And uh, I think especially with Mayor Barker's campaign, I mean, as a 35-year-old that's coming in from uh, being a state rep to trying to take uh, mayoralship of one of the largest cities we have in our state mm-hmm. and having an incumbent that was there, um, I mean, beating an incumbent's hard in any year. Uh, and Mayor Barker really leaned into the young vote uh, through Betsy Mercier, Melissa um, now Hughes, and um, some of our um, leadership here at USM. Uh, we just we stepped up to the plate. We saw Toby's vision uh, for Hattiesburg and and the uh, cooperation that he wanted to do um, through the young professionals, through the younger voters, and um, showing that, hey, there's so much that we can do here in Hattiesburg and so much that we're able to uh, grow and do. And he leaned into us, and we leaned into him, and um, he won by a, a pretty good margin. And yeah. uh, then right after that, helping Missy McGee get elected, uh, I mean, it was just the younger people saw the need for um, people that understood our values and the people that um, would represent us. Uh, in the position. How, how do we get them more involved, uh, Sawyer? How, how do we get them to register to vote, to get out and vote, to get involved and, and take some interest in the political process? Well, you know, I think that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we I think that we have to do a, um, a, a great job of having the younger people um, understand that, you know, these positions are elected by the people and for the people. This isn't for the rich and powerful to always just have an oversight. This is for Regular everyday people, whether, um, you know, you're a 20 year old that wants to get involved, uh, on the lowest level, um, working through election commission or, um, you know, all the way up to the top level of, um, working toward governor, what, no matter what you want to do, um, you know, we need people that are, are, um, driven and ready to go, um, represent South Mississippi. And we, we've had a great job of, like I said, Michael Watson's done a great job of getting out and, uh, registering people to vote. Um, I think we can do a great job of getting to our colleges, getting to, you know, those people stepping out um, in in that younger age group um, to just have a message that um, kind of ignites their passion and having those younger people that are ready to step up and take the torch because, uh, you know, our our elected officials know that um, we're the next generation. We're the next generation of young professionals, of elected leaders, and we have to get a, a statement out there that um, is powerful enough to resonate with them, to get them motivated to register to vote and have their voices heard. Yeah. You also serve on the Economic Development Council uh, for the city of Long Beach. Uh, that's pretty impressive at, at your age there, Sawyer. What, uh, what do you guys got cooking down there right now that, that you can talk about? <laughs> yes, sir, of course. So, um, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm involved all over the state. I have a real big passion for South Mississippi and, um, and Long Beach, especially down here. We have uh, a lot going on. Um, I mean, Bill Lavers is our Harrison County Economic Development, um, uh, executive director. And, um, we're just kind of getting off the ground with our Economic Development Council. Um, Angie Johnson and, uh, Donald Frazier and the councilman down here have done a great job in trying to gather businessmen and women and, uh, local residents to kind of step up and, uh, take. So we're, we're just in our uh, beginning process and our baby steps, um, but I'm excited to see where it's going to go and all the businesses and things that we're going to bring into the city. Well, it, it, every time I'm down there, uh, just traveling across the Tri-County uh, coastal area, I mean, it seems like business is booming. Things are great. We just had Mayor Fofo Gillage on earlier in the week, and 
Uh, looks like their sales tax revenues are are uh, way above uh, projections. So sounds like things are going great. Yes, sir. It's uh, it's really good to see the success we're having in South Mississippi. Uh, I'm like I said, I'm able to uh, to get around a lot and everywhere from Hattiesburg down to the coast and see just what we have going on and can't wait to see you know how far we go. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, Sawyer, appreciate uh, you writing the article. It was great, and uh, and for being so involved as you are. I, I know your future is incredibly bright. It's been good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you, Gerard, for having me on. Can't wait to see uh, some more coming. You got it. We're coming right back here, folks, in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, just watching Nvidia. It's up ten bucks today, two point two five percent, trading at four hundred and sixty six dollars. Several analysts and investment firms have put a buy rating on the company and expect it to trend upward. One yesterday, I heard said seven fifty for a fifty two week high, seven hundred fifty dollars. It's sitting at four sixty-six. You're talking two eighty-eight or so. That's a big time bump in fifty-two weeks. If you could just back the truck up and buy some of that, you'd make a little money. Provided it hits that mark. Well, that's right. I mean, it's all speculative. That's why we got buyers and sellers. But that's the big news in on the business front today. And now it's up over ten bucks. I I just checked it. So they are going to is Nvidia. They're going to report earnings after the bell. So I think the the big question is is this this uh, AI explosion is it real? Is it real? I'd say it is. And, I, and here's why I say that because I'm seeing reports of companies you wouldn't typically think about making investments in such technology who are, and they're investing heavily in it, such as Price Waterhouse Coopers, big one of the big four CPA firms. I'm still just a little hesitant to to go all in on it. I, I still feel like without a major breakthrough it it has a big risk of plateauing. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh but who knows? You know, where's the top? Where's the right. bottom? That's always the question. That's why we got buyers and sellers. But is, is this setting up to be sort of a repeat of the Internet boom? And, of course, there was bust as well. There's a lot of companies that came onto the scene, got in, got out, made some people money, lost some people money. 
didn't sustain. And that's the the key difference there is you've got the internet. Yeah. The connection between all these different devices. And in that same vein, but separate from that, you had the dot-com bubble. And a lot of people think they're the same thing. The dot-com bubble was a part of the growth of the internet, but it's not the entirety of the internet. That's right. I mean, how many times do you actually go to a website nowadays versus using an app or getting on social media and finding whatever you were going to find at a dot-com on an app? Very true. And now, of course, we got this thing called search engines. And and, uh, I caught on National Geographic two nights ago, fantastic documentary about the build-out of the Internet. I mean, it's pretty much placed in the late 80s, early to mid-90s. Was it Tim Berners-Lee? I can't remember. You talking about the name of it? I don't remember. No, the guy that was kind of the front-runner. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So what was featured in the the show, though, were the two individuals at uh, Stanford. Yeah, he was the guy that came up. He's known as the inventor of the World Wide Web. He also had a hand in making HTML markup language, the URL system, and HTTP. Okay. So which which basically put a a user-friendly graphical interface on uh, the the Internet. And, of course, Netscape, the browser, first out of the shoot there, has a connection here to Mississippi with Jim Barksdale. And uh, they did pretty well at that. And then what happened, as you recall, was Microsoft came out with Internet Explorer and started shipping it in their operating system, which was bundled with PCs. And folks said, well, why do I need to go pay for Netscape when I got IE for free on my operating system? And then that launched lawsuits and so forth. So and now nobody uses Internet Explorer. Yeah, exactly. Now nobody uses that. Exactly. I mean, so that's... Um, that's just kind of how those things evolve. Not not surprising, but no doubt that a, a, a key watershed aspect of the internet build out was search engine Google, and there were some interviews with the two individuals. Th- these were actually old interviews from when they were coming up with the concept, and they're Harvard guys. Uh, pardon me, Stanford guys. And one was more of a business person, and one was more of the the brain mathematicians. Really, what it was? Oh, yeah. It was just a bunch of math, very, very, very complex algorithms to to search this giant world of content, all interconnected, and present it on your screen pretty quick. And this is all pre cell phones, right? And and so I unfortunately I can't remember the details, but they talked about how they came up with the name Google, and it, it originally it was, I want to say G-O-G-L or G-O-O-G-L, and that stands something, that, that represents something, and it's got some historical context. I mean, like maybe back to Greece or something, but that was, and they looked at it and said, you know, I don't think that flows very well, so they kind of... Morphed. Yeah, G-O-O-G-O-L. Okay, that's it. That's right. G O O L. Shorthand for ten to the hundredth power. Okay, there you go. That's exactly right. It's math. I knew it had some connection there, uh, because it was just math. I mean, search algorithms are just or search engines are just nothing but math. All they did was put a skin on it that the average person can use, and underneath it is all this complex 
uh, math. But the two individuals at uh, Stanford, which is where a lot of this stuff came from, and, and they invented this, and um, and then, but they didn't like, I guess, the spelling of this G O O G O L, and that's where they Google. Came. It's yeah, a, it's this the prefix for a Googleplex. Yeah, that's right. And so they came up with the uh, the L E uh, sort of version of it. And yeah, because before that you had Yahoo Search, which right? They had their own algorithm. You had Ask Jeeves, which yeah. was more of and a they natural language algorithm where you, you literally would type in a question, much like you're seeing with AI, where you can type in a natural language question and get a result. And you had other crawlers and aggregate, like Dogpile was my favorite crawler, where it would search <laughs> all the search engines at once. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating looking back at that history, though. But you're, they actually had a feature where there were commercials. Ask Jeeves oh, yeah. used to run television commercials. Had the butler there with yeah. the answer under the little silver exactly dome. right. That's exactly right. Like serving your platter up, silver platter. That was pretty cool. Um, also, Napster was a big part of the early days. And then there was um, – they, they had some – uh, clips of uh, like the evening news, the national news on the, on the big three channels at the time, where they were talking about people getting addicted to the internet. This was in the '90s before you had phones. And and what's really kind of neat to look at is the the old big old tube monitors, you know, and, and showing that surfing the web, surfing the web. That's it. Surfs up. Remember that? <laughs> You've got mail. Uh, exactly. It's just incredible. Uh, when you look back at that history, and that just ain't too long ago either. Which no, it's is, not in the grand scheme of things. And, and it's just unbelievable. And virtually all of this came from this country, you know, originated here. I, I remember reading articles back in the, uh, that time frame when I was in business. I, I wasn't as smart as those guys that were inventing all that stuff. But the, the angel investors and the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley – were literally cutting deals with students at Stanford before they even came up with anything. You're shaking your head. You're familiar with what I'm talking about. They were cutting deals and getting them under contract and locking them up from a business perspective. I know you're going to invent something, but, but I want to be your financial partner, essentially, in doing so. While they were in college, before they even came up with anything, just on the outside chance that they would, because so many were. They'd come up with an idea, and they'd get it out to the market. Now, some of those got in, got out, made a quick buck, and and weren't long-term sustainable or viable. But, wow, it's incredible. I I may have talked about it before. There's a book about how the the whole PC and the PC industry and all the stuff we're accustomed to today – was invented, and, and the name of that book's Accidental Empires. And it, it is awesome, and it's about uh, Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, P-A-R-C is the acronym for it. And so much of what we we uh, we look at today that's just mainstream, it, it came from there. Xerox didn't know what to do with it, honestly, but the Winchester Drive, the mouse, the graphical user interface, the personal computer itself, Ethernet, all invented by Xerox. There's the some old guy still working at Xerox going, why? <laughs> why couldn't I figure out the mouse? <laughs> exactly right. Um, man, it's just fascinating. to, And that's and so that's why the book's called Accidental Empires. Uh, the guy that, in, that invented PostScript. 
That's the language that originally was embedded in um, laser printers to produce graphical output on paper that looked like what's on your screen. And at the time, it was described as the most complex, sophisticated software ever developed, including that which took us to the moon or the space shuttle. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Where do you go, my lovely? Where do you go? I want to know, my lovely. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Ben from Madison says, Black Labs are the best dogs on the planet. I'm biased, though. Talking about our new puppy, Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. That's, uh, and he, he's so quiet. You know, I'm used to Brute, of course, was, a was an older dog, but, uh, and he, and he had the, the toenails. The little puppy doesn't have the toenails. So on our wooden floors, I don't hear that. And sometimes we'll lose him, like, where the heck did he go? We have to go <laughs> run around, find him. He's like a little rat running around. Got to tie a balloon to him. <laughs> He's really something, though. We're uh, we're having fun with it, and we look forward to uh, the adventures with him over his life. You know what we need him to do is keep them dang raccoons out of the yard, because my wife is uh, an avid feeder. I may have talked about this yesterday, of the birds and has the canister that we hang from the poles in the in the beds on the perimeter of my yard, and those are right under some fairly tall uh, pine trees, loblolly pines. And at night, those raccoons come down, and they just attack those bird feeders. And they'll be on the ground. doesn't take long. They're just lapping up all the food there. So she has to go out and get them at night. But when Brute was around, them raccoons didn't come in the yard. You know, he, he was kind of a deterrent, and he always patrolled. He could smell them. You know, he patrolled that that uh, side of our, our back lawn and along the fence there, our our iron uh, fence. So we, we need this one to grow up and and uh, keep those raccoons at bay. So it establishes turf. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, so that birds have their food. And they're looking for they're looking for water. Do you notice that the birds are looking for water? We've got a uh, a, a, a bird a bird bath, you know, in the in the backyard, and I'll see them making a dive in that. So I'm keeping that full of water on a regular basis because it's dry. Oh yeah, and um, and you're seeing the the uh, the wildlife, the deer out as well. They're all looking for some water. And uh, I mean, if you spent your entire life out of doors in this kind of heat, you'd be wanting some water, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough deal. So I hope all that works out. Also, Ben says, sounds like you have some pretty awesome listeners. That's really neat. Talking about the, the friend of the show that came by and gave me the Journey magazine. Really appreciate that. It's so, so cool. William and Brandon says, I've been in and out of my state vehicle and wondered if you touched on the PERS update. Thanks for all you do. Really have it. William, I mean, there's no change there. Per- PERS still 
has a difficult road ahead from a financial perspective, and its shortfalls will have to be addressed uh, by the legislature. Uh, the only thing for sure that, uh, in terms of any reform in the program, is the increase in the employer contribution rate of 5%, which goes into effect July 1, 2024. 2024. should also point out that I saw the uh, Department of Revenue's monthly memo, which uh, reports on collections for the month, the prior month, uh, against sine die estimates, uh, also on the fiscal year-to-date performance as well from a collections perspective. And and so our fiscal year in the state of Mississippi ends June 30th. So the G- July report from the department, actually from the Legislative Budget Office, I should say, that I was looking at, which was just released yesterday, indicates that the state did produce an excess of revenue overspending, also called a surplus of some $1.3 billion. So another incredibly strong performance for our state. Uh, revenues came in at about $700 million above estimates, but revenues were estimated to come in last year about $600 million above spending. But because revenues uh, uh, came in about level, a little bit more than projected, we ended up, bottom line, we ended up with a $1.3 billion surplus. So that's pretty strong. That is very strong when you consider that the uh, general fund spending is $6.3 billion. So you're looking at roughly 20% of spending uh, coming in in the form of a surplus. So the question is, will our legislature act on that uh, vis-a-vis tax reform, either sales tax, income tax, or both. Heck, right now, I'd settle to just send a check out. How about that? We got uh, significant assets in the bank, having produced surpluses for the last, tidy surpluses the last few years, $1.3 billion this year. How about sending a check out to everybody? Now, I have a, a different approach on that that might not be popular. I've talked about this before on the program. It's been a while. It, rather than just sending a flat dollar amount to every tax-paying household, why don't we prorate it based on taxes paid in? The more you paid in, the more you get back. I know that's not very popular, but it's, to me, it's fair. We'll see. Certainly, though, you're going to see, I think, a push for some reforms. The question is, is this structural or not? Is it, Can we expect a continuation of these surpluses, or is it an anomaly? Are we still dealing, dealing with some of the leftovers of all the COVID federal money introduced into our nation's economy, including here in Mississippi, or and is that or is this more of a sustainable structural environment where we can expect 
continued significant surpluses to the tune of a billion dollars. If that's the case, then we should take another axe to the income tax, in my view. We'll see, for sure. I'm looking at uh, the television here in the studio. India becomes the fourth country to land on the moon. Just had uh, seen it right now. There's uh, the spacecraft landing, and the the, the uh, video now is showing what looks like their mission control, the equivalent, and all the all the scientists and all those involved in the flight. And prime the prime minister of India is now on screen waving the flag of the Indian nation, fourth country, land up there on the moon. That's something. With a bit of a thumb to the nose of Russia because they tried to do the same thing a couple of days ago and failed. Crashed, didn't it? I mean, oh, blew yeah. up. Right? Right after takeoff. The, the spacecraft literally exploded. Yeah, they didn't do so well. I'd have to say, what is said it 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, but I'd say today my money would be more on India than Russia to succeed in spaceflight. But, yeah, that's a big room full of people, uh, engineers and, and other flight control personnel. It did look similar to what we're accustomed to seeing in this country is mission control, and they're all clapping and celebrating as they should. That's if I'm not mistaken, I think they're the first country to go to the lunar south pole. Oh, I didn't know that. I think that's where the mission was headed. Okay, the lunar south pole. So the image I just saw there with that looked like a similar to U.S. lunar modules. The LEM, right? Isn't that what they call it? L-E-M, as I recall. Is that right? Sounds right. Is that uh, what actually is, is, is a disembarked from the capsule that kept? Yeah, the Apollo lunar module, the LM, the LEM. LEM, okay. So it, it, this looks similar to that, what I just saw on the screen here. And you're saying that that landed on the south pole of the moon. I think it's near the South Pole, but the the mission was to explore and study the South Pole. Okay. I wonder if there's uh, something distinctive about it relative to, I guess, of course, we hadn't been there that much, so, (laughs) uh, but relative to, say, for where this country uh, landed. I don't know. That's interesting. See what will come up with that. Well, let's see here. Somebody else said something. I remember on some of the old computers, when you got done at the end of the day, you had to back up your work, and it would say, rewriting the template, laugh out loud, ancient history seems like. Yeah, that's true. Back in the old days, you had to make sure you backed up all your data to removable media, as we called it. Typically, that was magnetic tape, and they came in different formats. Yeah, absolutely. The first... uh, Backup systems we sold back in the mid-80s there were from a company called Tallgrass. That is a blast from the past. Look that up. Tallgrass Technologies. And they made uh, cassette tape backups that you plug into your PC. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. (laughs) 
It's so awesome. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Stumble to the kitchen for myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. With folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Welcome back, everyone. Middays. Final segment of Hour 2 after the break. Of course, we'll have the news at the top of the hour. And then it's Marty Stewart. Marty Stewart, famous Mississippi musician. And he'll talk about Dolly Parton, whom we just heard for uh, from there, coming to the great state of Mississippi. A, a question on the ceasefire text line about the Mississippi lottery. You mentioned the other day that all of the local games – which are not multi-state, are drawn by a computer randomly, do the payouts follow a program, or is it completely random? not really sure what you mean by do the payouts follow a program, but what I can say is that, uh, yeah, in general, the gaming systems and the gaming partner – to the Lottery Corporation, and the corporation work together to determine a range of, of payouts uh, by game, literally, the odds. I mean, it's complex uh, algorithms, and it's done by what are called RNGs, random number generators, and the same applies to the state drawdown games, which are different than the multi-state drawdown games, but those two use random number generators, and they are incredibly sophisticated. Oh yeah, it's just a really complicated math problem with variables that come from somewhere else. That's right. the way it can't be gamed. So, like if you say, say you have a RNG, a, run, a random number generator, and it's got the whole algorithm set up to spit out a random number, but it needs this one variable. They'll, they've got them to where it can pull the variable from the fourth decimal place of the CPU temperature or the seventh decimal place of the y-axis on a G-force rate. I mean, there's all kind of weird things. They just, they'll pluck a number out of it and then extrapolate from there and get a random number that you can't possibly figure out where it came from. That's precisely right. That's how it works. And, and that's why it is totally random because when you just pick variables to insert into the formulas that could come from any variety of sources. In the early days before we had random number generators, which honestly... Random number tables? Yeah, so in the early days when they had a lottery, uh, the first in New York, they would use the closing average of the Dow Jones. That was considered random. I mean, nobody could guess that specifically, right? So... Uh, just as an idea, but when RNGs came around, which I want to say was in the 60s, is when those were developed, and they've gotten even more sophisticated from them. But to answer the question, and I will tell you this, that uh, folks that may not realize, the Lottery Corporation literally purchased random number generator software to stand up to establish 
the games, the drawdown games in the state. So we started out intentionally just to get our feet wet to make sure all of um, our, our operational systems were working correctly. We started out with just scratch-offs. And the other thing to think about is, you're a retailer. This is all brand new, right? So you can imagine lots of the folks that work in the retail stores that sell the tickets, they get questions from players. And so if you rolled all that out at one time, you could just imagine how difficult that would be. If you had scratch-off, multi-state, and state drawdown simultaneously, that would just be overwhelming. So we phased it in intentionally. That was a decision the board and management made early on. And um, and so we started out with the scratch-offs, get everybody acclimated to that. Then we moved into the multi-state game several months later. And then ultimately we introduced the state uh, drawdown games. But that required the state, the lottery corporation, owning and purchasing random number generator software. So that's how it works. Which I want to say it's for encryption. It's not necessarily a random number generation, but is it Cloudflare that has the hundred, the wall of lava lamps, and they've got a camera pointed at it with the program using the different lava lamps to set random numbers for their encryption? They do, um, and that's that's just a protection mechanism, right, just to protect against uh, – hacking and and some sort of random guessing and crazy stuff like that. Why can't we shore up PERS with a surplus, says Joel from Loosedale, because the the PERS shortfall is uh, $21 billion and the, and the surplus is one. So we, it, we need a whole lot more. And it's $21 billion a day, and it's continuous. So need a whole lot more than that. You certainly could... Say, okay, well, let's just go apply this $1.3 billion surplus produced this fiscal year. Could transfer that to the PERS fund, and that would reduce its unfunded liability. I don't think that'd be popular, honestly, with the taxpayers of the state of Mississippi, because you're essentially you're just dumping their excess taxes into the PERS fund. It's, it's a tough deal, and that's why we got to keep talking about it. Coming right back with Marty Stewart. Stay with us. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well studio on this hump day. Joining us now is the great Marty Stewart. Hey, Marty, how's it going? I'm good, Gerard. Good to see you on long-term radio here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you got the great uh, Dolly Parton coming, uh, coming to uh, Mississippi, right? Coming to the Congress of country music. Is that right? Dolly, Dolly Parton is coming to Philadelphia, Mississippi this coming Saturday, August the 26th for two shows at the Ellis Theater 
and it is a fundraiser for the Congress of Country Music. So um, that kicks off season two at the Ellis, and I don't know if you could find a better way to get season two going than have Miss Dolly Parton come to town. Yes, that's pretty incredible. Um, that's awesome. Congratulations. Marty, I attended the event we had at the Westin uh, fundraiser uh, for the Congress of Country Music, and when you guys were talking about all the the artifacts and the items that would be curated and exhibited, I was just blown away, and, and the effort of you personally in collecting uh, these things, just incredible. How, how's that been going? Oh, it's been good. Um, it's been a you know it's a, it's a life sentence and a life passion. It started with me when you know I was a kid, and bands would come through Philadelphia to play at the Neshoba County Fair. Gospel groups would come. I'd you know buy their records, get their autographs, ask for guitar picks, and take it home and put it in my bedroom. And <laughs> it looked, uh, to me, it was like Smithsonian in my bedroom. Yeah. But as time went on, um, those treasures started getting lost and sold in junk stores around Nashville. And the first piece that I bought was in the early 1980s. It was Patsy Cline's makeup kit for $75. And it just looked wrong to see something of that magnitude in a junk store. So <laughs> it started there. Now Congress country music around those, that level. So when, when everything is said and done, it's going to be 50,000 square feet. Is that right? No good was I'm really not the architect. So as we speak, the architects are drawing phase two so we can go to work. Hopefully, by the first year, come to this building. I'll put it that way. Gotcha. So, uh, what other um, headlining entertainment do you have scheduled, Marty, to, to play at the theater? For this season, uh, Beyond Dolly, I think the first show after that is Miss Dorothy Moore. By us, these were our local legends. And beyond that, Steve Miller Band is coming. Uh, Roger McGuinn is coming. Bride, the Maverick, uh, um, Graceland hosting an Elvis film night of uh, Valentine's Day. We have Turner Classic Movies come to host tonight. The Library of Congress is coming at Christmas to host holiday films. Me and the Superlatives are coming. Wow. I don't know if I said Roger McGuinn. So it's, it's, it's all world-class talent. Wow. That's incredible. How, how big a deal is it to you, Marty, to to construct this um Congress of Country and uh, in your birthplace, in your hometown. Well, I think it's my legacy piece. I love everything that we have in, in place already in the state. What's his birthplace? BB's place up in the Delta. Uh, the Grammy on the campus of Delta State. The Maverick and Jimmy Rogers Museum, Clark still Blues Museum. But I feel like this is that's who I am. And it's, 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 I call it my hillbilly presidential library. <laughs> and it's, it's a people can come and, you know, feast on the culture. 
and uh, learn about the culture. And I feel like it's a great, great thing to leave behind. And if you think about it, father of country music, Jimmy Rogers, 35 miles down the road, ready. And so it's a part of his legacy as well. Yeah. And you're going to attract people, already are, from all over the world. What What are they, and, and many of them have never been to the great state of Mississippi, certainly not to, uh, likely not to Philadelphia. What What kind of feedback do you get? What do you hear? On opening night last December, when me and the supervisors in contemplated, I asked, asked where are you from? And I think at the end of the night, there were six different countries Wow. Represented and 16 different states. And I was told, I asked the other day out of curiosity about the Dolly Parton show. And I think there's like, you know, people are coming from all over this nation and some international travelers as well. But Mississippi is pretty well versed in hosting international travelers who come to see our, you know, music trails and our, you know, writers' trails. So, that's nothing new. I'm just glad we can pile on and help you know, attract attract more people to come. Yeah, that's that's totally awesome. What was the original inspiration? I mean, I know you said earlier, Marty, this is kind of what you see is is your legacy. But was there sort of this aha moment, this light bulb that went off and said, "I need to do this"? Yeah, BB King was my pal. BB used to come to Indianola, I think maybe once or twice a year, and just sit down and do the presence to raise money and help out with his uh, place. BB called me one time and asked me for the day with him and play a show and help his you know, funds for the BB. Absolutely. So we went and spent the day with Dan, and on the way out of Indianola that night, I went, oh my God, it was like <laughs> it was like that in the Blues Brothers movies. Was well, a sign from God. <laughs> divinely said, "You need to take your th- your facts and the rest of your life up in Mississippi and do a country music where BB is doing in Indianola." And I really remember looking up, going, "Are you sure about this?" It's like setting a spaceship down in the middle of the, the, the back of Mississippi. <laughs> it became the thing. Spend the day with BB King. Wow, that's totally awesome. Well, Marty, um, it, I know it's a labor of love. It is a fantastic asset and will be a long-lasting treasure for uh, Mississippi. Certainly for your hometown of Philadelphia, and you're so generous uh, in this effort. And of course, to contribute many of your personal items, I know folks will marvel at that. And uh, I, I, I can't wait to see the total finished product. And all the best uh, in the rest of your career, Marty. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for your time this morning. You bet. Marty Stewart, everyone. Well, uh, I know we had kind of some issues with the connection at some point there, but uh, this is really incredible if you think about that. And I'm not kidding. When he was going through Rhino last year to fundraising event we had down to Weston, he was talking about some of the things he had collected through the years. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. You know, he uh, so I don't know how common that is to have someone of his artistical talent. You know, someone that has recorded, has produced. 
and also is a collector. I mean, I know a lot of them do have just fascination with all genres of the art, honestly, but the collection he discussed and described it was incredible. And now that's going to be on display, curated, exhibited in this uh, Congress of Country. What a fantastic asset that's going to be uh, for Mississippi. And Dolly Parton <laughs> coming to perform, that's a pretty dang big deal. You know, she's pretty big. <laughs> so that that's just a, a, unbelievable. Um, it's uh, really an honor to talk to him. And and got to meet him last year before we had the event, and just a outstanding individual, great person, great ambassador for Mississippi. And this is going to be something I think we're all going to want to see. We're so blessed with with so much diverse artistical talent. If you think about all those who have have really. Uh, excelled at their craft, overachieved, it just seems like we're replete in the state of Mississippi with these overachievers. Like, we have more than our fair share, and that's good, honestly. I'm biased, of course, because this is my home state, and I love it, and I want to see it succeed and everybody in it succeed. But we're truly blessed in that respect. Who would have thought that with such a small population – out would come so much talent across just a spectrum of disciplines. And Mr. Stewart, certainly one of them, and the Congress of Country will, I think, do him proud. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. Let's see here. We um, we got a couple of texts here on the ceasefire text line talking about my idea of sending out a refund, which I don't think will happen, For the uh, just to be clear, by the way. And, and uh just to back up a little bit, we had a $1.3 billion surplus in the state of Mississippi for fiscal year 2023. Revenues exceeding spending by that amount. And that also, revenues also bested the revenue forecast for 2023 by roughly $700 million. So, uh, six hundred million is kind of 
already baked into the budget in terms of a surplus for 2023, and then because we beat revenue estimates, ended up with a $1.3 billion surplus. And I simply suggested that since I don't know if we're going to get any longer-term tax reform anytime soon, that perhaps we should at least consider sending rebates, tax rebates out to the taxpayers. And I suggested doing that on a prorated basis. And then, of course, I was reminded on the ceasefire text line here that uh, a good bit of the reason for our surplus was uh, due to increased sales tax collection. So the way it works out from a state revenue perspective about 35% or so of it comes from sales tax. Roughly the same, slightly lower, comes from individual income tax. And then the next big next big source would be corporate income and franchise taxes. Comes in at about 12%. Got insurance premium tax, small taxes on beer and wine. Use taxes, which is essentially another form of sales tax. You got kind of an other category. The state gets a small chunk of money from car tags. Uh, You got gaming fees as well, gaming taxes from the casinos, tobacco tax. So, but most of the money comes from, it's true, and it's typical uh, of a state in terms of its revenue sources comes from income taxes and sales taxes. And there, the two of those com- combine for just about 70% of total revenue, almost split in half sales and income. So the idea of a rebate that I suggested based solely on income tax and prorating it on that basis, I'm reminded to some extent omits those who um, in, in terms of the rebate, those who uh, spent money and produced sales taxes. This person said on ceasefire tax line, well, they dug into their savings. You know, I don't know about that. I think a lot of the sales tax increases that we've experienced over the last couple of years is because the federal government sent everybody checks. Had a whole bunch of people that got stimulus checks, and you had Tax, tax changes, federal tax changes in terms of child tax credits. Remember that? We talked about that extensively on the program. You had that. Uh, unemployment, compensation, aug- augmented unemployment compensation from the federal government that also, most of which went into the stores, produced retail sales, and that generated um, sales taxes. So, I don't know about dipping into the savings there. I, I think I'd take a bit of an exception to that. There's no doubt that the federal government sent out a whole bunch of money that people did nothing for. And then you got the PPP loans as well that went out. And not a lot of criteria and testing there other than to just keep people employed. And a lot of companies didn't really experience a downturn in their sales, but yet they got this Big one-time money in the form of forgivable loans, and and that too filtered through the economy and generated sales tax. But I submit, though, that 
a person's spending, generally speaking, is in line with their income. And so the higher their income, for the most part, I think you could assume, they also spent more money, and that therefore generated more uh, sales taxes. So I still say on that basis it would be fair, but you could certainly make a case for, well, let's just make a minimum amount and send everybody at least a minimum amount and then have some adjustment on top of that based on the amount of income taxes they remitted. Because they, they honestly, in my view, contributed from a dollar value perspective more to the state surplus. So it's an interesting, interesting set of thoughts. All I know is we got a one point three billion dollar surplus right now, and it, it's still a bit up in the air as to whether or not that's structural, systemic, meaning it's just baked into our state's economy and our spending model. And and even though there may be some folks that are not happy with the way our state government has conducted its fiscal affairs, the fact is, even when it knew or it projected, not new, but projected with good information forming the basis of those projections that we were going to produce considerably more revenue than we appropriated to spend. They could have spent it all, but they didn't. So you have to take your hat off to our state government. That doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to reduce spending where it makes sense. But imagine if our federal government operated that way. No, the federal government, not only do they spend every dime we send, this year they're on track to spend $2 trillion more than we send. So I think you have to take your hat off to our state government for not just going crazy and say, hey, look, we got all this surplus. Let's spend every dime of it. It's exactly what happened in California, except they overcooked it, and they went from literally generating a $80 billion, insane, surplus to about a $30 billion deficit in the span of 24 months because the Democrats that run California and their state capital of Sacramento, and they, by the way, got total control of the state, super majority control, went crazy and just spent it and expected the good times from a revenue perspective, not only to continue, to, but, con- but to continue at a much higher level than was experienced. And now they got to deal with that. You know the story I shared yesterday, Rhino, about the Portland schools with the equitable grading? If you cheat, we don't count off. They're doing a feature on the television on it right now. So it's just starting to take hold, this nonsense, this this uh, march to mediocrity. I hope that comes up in the discussion tonight. I saw also from the Washington Post, interesting, six suggested questions for tonight. Here they are. I won't get into the details. I'll first just read to you what they're suggesting. Show of hands, who thinks Mike Pence did the right thing on January 6th? Number two, what's your specific plan for addressing the fentanyl crisis? Number three, what are the downsides of your fentanyl policy? So of six questions, a third of them are about fentanyl. 
Interesting. Number four, tell me three steps you'd take on the economy. Number five, would you use government power to punish corporations for political positions? That's a weird question. That's DeSantis and Disney. It, it is, and, and they're also, they talk about that, and they also talk about Trump, who regularly attacked corporations that angered him. And I've said on the program many times, I don't think it's appropriate for an elected official to publicly attack a business or a citizen unless they've broken the law. That's my opinion. Do you support a national ban on abortion at what stage of pregnancy? So those are the six questions. Interestingly enough, in their commentary on uh, the economy, they say, if I can find it here, yeah, they say this would probably elicit some pretty rote answers. Stop the spending, Biden inflation. <laughs> But there's no way to skip this topic, and this might provide an opportunity for some differentiation among the candidates, perhaps start a conversation about Social Security or Medicare. Hey, I'm on board. That's from the Washington Compost. Hey, we're coming right back. we got half an hour left of midday. Stay with us. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. On Super Talk Mississippi. We appreciate it. Appreciate you joining us. So just uh, got a text from a friend, Rhino. We were talking about the uh, the nation of India just landed a, a spacecraft on the surface of the moon. You said it was the South Pole Correct. of the moon or close to it. And so a friend said the South Pole is thought to have water said, uh, go down the helium-3 rabbit hole. That's what could be a game-changer, nuclear uh, fusion. And I looked it up. God, there's just a ton of content out there in the Google world about just that, that subject matter. I didn't know that. Helium-3 mining on the lunar surface says that the moon has been bombarded with large quantities of helium-3 by solar winds, it doesn't have the protection of the magnetic field that the Earth does, guess which shields us from the helium emitted. I didn't know anything about this, honestly. So this is one of the main resources that would be used in nuclear fusion, helium-3, apparently, it says, uh, this article I'm looking at, and it's uh, an article from a, 
a professional organization, research organization that studies this topic, said helium-3 is an isotope that is known since 1988, which ain't too long ago, to be useful for nuclear fusion. How about that? If you could figure out a way to mine that on the moon's surface and transport it back to Earth, use it in the production of nuclear power, which, why aren't we just going after that guns blazing right now? It's so dumb, honestly. It's so short-sighted. I, because they don't really want to solve the power problem. No. They want you to change your life dramatically to conform to their vision of what it needs to look like so you can be re- more reliant on them. The idea that we could we could expand nuclear power and create ubiquitous cheap energy is not a thought they even want in their head. That's just sick. It really is. It's disgusting. It's selfish is what it is. It's like I've said before. If the, if the left actually cared about the earth and the environment, they would be touting the fact that we saved the West Coast from acid rain. That's true. I haven't even heard about that. I mean, where'd that go? That was the, the, to be the next big deal that was going to take us down, right? Fascinating, though. I'm, I appreciate my friend sending that to me. So also, uh, I had a friend send in, you know, we ought to think about using that surplus to pay the debt down, the state's debt, which sits at, I think last I checked, about $7 billion, maybe a little more than that. Sure, that's an idea uh, as well. It just depends on, honestly, in my view, whether or not it's more effective, more efficient to pay debt down than it is to, say, rebate that money. From an economic perspective, what produces the best economic outcome? Uh, you know, I, the, the the state is easily able to handle its, uh, its present load of debt from a debt service perspective. It's really just a question of, do you fear more difficult, challenging economic times ahead such that Revenues would run short, and it would be impossible, if not very painful, to continue to service our debt and meet our obligations. Because if you didn't, and if you defaulted, then the cost of your debt would go up dramatically. What I mean by cost is when you go out and you need to borrow money from the markets, and you sell bonds... If you have had any sort of hiccup in the past, it's like your credit rating, essentially. You're going to have to pay higher rates of interest to the bondholders. So you want to stay in good shape there and manage your debt portfolio appropriately and your fiscal affairs appropriately. All that figures into your bond rating, and that's what is used to determine the interest rates that we pay and taxpayers pay. On our debt. So that's an idea. Uh, just tuning in, what is your suggestion on correcting the PERS liability, grandfather retirees, and create 401k, 4013b for current employees? Most companies are freezing and terminating defined benefit pension plans. Yeah, we, we have talked about that. Um, you won't find too many private companies that de- have defined benefit plans. And, and 
Again, just to clarify, defined benefit plan, there, there are two types of pensions, defined benefit, defined contribution. Defined benefit plans, essentially what that means is once you're eligible to receive benefits in the case of a pension plan upon retirement and you've fully vested, met all the other requirements, those benefits flow to you until death, regardless of how much you paid in. In the case of a defined contribution plan, that's what you're more accustomed to with standard sort of 401k savings plans. You're building up a nest egg there, and once you retire and you start withdrawing from it, once you've withdrawn all the funds in it, uh, you're done. There's nothing left. You, they don't continue to debt. They continue as long as you have funds available in the account or accounts. Uh, not many private companies have defined benefit plans anymore. Most of them had the good sense to to uh, eliminate those and transition out of those several years ago, still having obligations to those being paid benefits, and they had to most of those companies had to take a big one-time write-off to fund future benefits. They just had to literally transfer money and take a uh, one-time expense charge to fund future benefits. In the case of PERS, uh, yeah, you'd have to do more than just protect present retirees. It wouldn't be fair to those that are within some striking distance of approaching retirement, in my opinion, to say, I'm sorry, all those years you paid in and you're getting ready to retire, we're changing the game on you. I don't think that'd be fair. So you, you'd have to come up with something reasonable that would that would protect those within a certain number of years, maybe it's 10 years, I don't know, of retirement. You'd have to do some complex actuarial math on that to figure out what would work. Yeah, you certainly could look at transitioning all new employees into defined contribution plans. But, you know, what you'd have to keep in mind there is that would the state have to pay more money to these employees uh, since they would no longer be participating in and building up uh, time in a defined benefit plan? That's one of the one of the attractions, honestly, to work in the public sector is that you get this unique public sector PERS, defined benefit plan, benefits until you die, pension. So you have to weigh all that out. But no doubt, like I've said so many times, got to either have more coming in, less going out, or a combination of the two to solve that problem. Same with Social Security and Medicare. I'm glad to see the Washington Post. But you know what they're thinking, Rhino. You look at, you look at how crafty they were, how clever with these questions. The idea about the economy and the Medicare and Social Security question, they know that's not politically popular. They want the Republicans to address that and to talk about it because they know it would likely draw the ire of the voters. Because the Democrats would immediately pounce on it and say, I told you those Republicans want to end your Social Security. They want to kill Social Security and Medicare. That's the way they they would... Uh, would frame it, which would be completely wrong, of course, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's never made a difference. So I'm a little surprised at the Washington Post, but now thinking back through it, yeah, that's intentional. I don't really understand the 
the fixation on fentanyl. I agree it's a problem. It needs to be addressed. You know, somebody asked me yesterday if I had just one question, what would you ask? And I I said that I'd ask them if they adhere to the concept of the buck stops with me and take responsibility and admit when they made the wrong call. And because you only they only gave me one question. I could come up with a million others. But I mean, and, and the reason I chose that one, which is more generic in nature, is because I think that is fundamental, fundamental and essential to addressing every other issue. It's, it's got to be honesty. It's got to be transparency. It's got to be to let go and acknowledge, yep, made the wrong call. We're pivoting. We're changing course. We're doing something better. But if you stick with no matter what happens, I'm never taking responsibility for it, and I'm never wrong, I maintain you never fix any problems. But they're all getting ready to pitch us tonight. When we come back, looks like Nikki Haley's on the uh, offensive. Stay with us. Final segment on Middays. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. be the great Doobie Brothers bumping us into this final segment of uh, Middays, and Rhino's got some tickets to the Doobie Brothers oh, to give away. Oh, yeah. One of the best-selling groups of all time, the Doobie Brothers, are going to be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon this Saturday night. Tickets for the show are already on sale at Ticketmaster.com, or if you're in the area, you can swing by the Brandon Amphitheater box office to get your tickets, but if you want to win some, Here's your chance. You got a chance to win a pair of tickets to see the Doobie Brothers. All you got to do is be the 20th person to text into the C Spire text line. That number is 601 879 4395. Why don't you already have that in your phone? Again, 601 879 4395. Be the 20th person to text in the key phrase long train running, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see the Doobie Brothers this Saturday night. At the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon. Right. Appreciate that, Rhino. So, uh, Thomas, by the way, the state's part of Medicaid expansion would come in at about a hundred million. That was one of the one of the things he was talking about. The federal government would cover approximately a billion dollars of Medicaid expansion. We can certainly debate pros and cons of Medicaid expansion and, uh, all day long, but we got at least be honest about the uh, the financial details of expansion. And it's not, and just to clarify, I know a lot of folks have concerns about this, Medicaid is not a program where the federal government, state government just send checks to people. It's uh, a program that, it's insurance. It, it covers the cost of services provided by health care providers, 
physicians, clinics, hospitals, etc., other healthcare professionals that that uh, are participating in the Medicaid program, except Medicaid. They just get paid for their work. I mean, that's that's what that is. So it's not just directly sending money to people, and and it uh, only applies if someone who's covered by Medicaid receives Medicaid eligible services. It's different than other typical welfare programs, which are just kind of recurring in nature at some certain level, such as SNAP and TANF and housing assistance, things like that. I just wanted to clarify, that's all. So I see text rolling in there. Why not ask them if REO should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Absolutely, they're Moe's, and they should be. You know that. Gary in, in the Berg says, use some surplus to hire more troopers and pay them a lot better. Define benefit plan. Be sure to get on Gerard's team at Annandale every time. Income for life. <laughs> I wish. Ben from Madison says, Toby Barker tweeted an update to the purse board yesterday afternoon. I'm not sure if you have discussed the changes yet today. I, I'm not a, familiar with that, Ben, but I can tell you that of all the municipal and county leaders I've interviewed, including several at this, this uh, year's MML, he certainly was the most concerned about the increase in the PERS contribution rate that will be borne by public sector employers. So the contribution rate, of course, applies to counties, municipalities, other public sector entities, besides those state agencies which receive funding from the state general fund or even the Department of Transportation, whose funding primarily comes from the federal government and fuel taxes levied at the pump in the state of Mississippi. But a city in Mississippi, its income primarily comes from its sales tax diversions. When sales taxes are collected at the retail level, those are all remitted to the Department of Revenue. The Department of Revenue then turns around and sends 18.4% of that back to the city the municipality in which the transaction occurred and the tax was collected. And then they also receive uh, some property taxes. Counties primarily operate from revenues, on revenues from property taxes. Uh, But they are responsible to pay out of those funds all the expenses associated with operating a city or a county, including... PERS contributions for their employees. And in fact, you know that in their financial statements, they actually have to report their portion of the unfunded liability. They're technically liable for it at the municipal level. And so I, I haven't seen that, Ben. I appreciate you pointing it out. But I do know that, that Mayor Barker has expressed concern, saying we got to come up with more money to pay this additional PERS contribution. We are out of here today, folks, and we're going to be back with you again tomorrow in the Element Well studio. Until then, stay cool, stay safe, and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.